You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. So, good morning. Um, one of the things I have been noticing for the last few years is that we all feel pressure to do something. You may know what I'm talking about. There, there seems to be a pervasive sense in our country right now that things are bad and getting worse, and we just feel a real pressure to do something. Does anybody else identify with that? Yeah, okay. And, and what makes it harder is that many of us feel powerless to do much at all, right? Uh, and so this powerlessness kind of shows up as a sense, a pervasive sense of anxiety and at times uh, ill-equipped manifestations of that anxiety. For example, now, now let me just, let's just talk about your friends for a minute. We're not, we're not, I'm not talking about y'all, I'm not talking about myself. We're just talking about people we know, right? Okay, all right, all right. So for example, I know it's not you or me, but, but someone that we probably know spends time at night in front of the TV watching the news and then proceeds to fuss at the TV as if someone's going to hear. I mean, again, this, this message is really for them. Take it to them. All right. <laughs> There's conviction in the room already. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Consequently, this friend or my mother uh, can be tempted... <laughs> can be tempted to call politicians or celebrities a bunch of idiots, or maybe something worse. And then they can feel justified <laughs> to make comments on social media or in conversations, Com comments that only solidifies their sense of moral superiority. Again, I'm not talking about us. We're just talking about people we know. Amen? <laughs> Guys, what I want you to see is this is a misuse of anxiety. We feel like we're doing something, but we're really not doing anything other than poorly managing our emotions, right? We're not moving the ball forward. So the question that we're left with is how do we operate from an empowered place for real change while not actually holding any strong, identifiable place of power within our government or culture? That's a good question to really think about. And, and in many ways, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they teach us how to stand in this empowered place. They, they show us how to do what we are calling for this series, the sacred stand, so that we can see God show up and make real change. The sacred stand means that one firmly decides to honor God amidst the fallen culture while genuinely seeking to serve people within that culture. Okay, so, so, so you, you won't fudge on integrity and trying to honor God, yet at the same time, you humbly seek to serve people within the fallen culture. And this is a big deal because the sacred stand invites the presence of God, the, the transforming of pre presence of God into our world. So I want to begin just by looking at the first couple of verses in Daniel chapter 1. Uh, since... Don already read this passage for us. We're just going to kind of skip around and look at different spots in the passage itself. 
At Mosaic, we say the best way to engage a message is with a Bible, something to write with, and something to write on. So look at Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to pick it up in verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. I want you to underline that first part of verse 2, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now folks, right out of the gate, there is a ton packed in these first two verses. Scripture is really the story of a God who, who seeks to keep coming down to be with his people. Like, that's kind of the story of Scripture. So God creates the earth, he creates a garden, he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and guess where God comes? Down to the Garden of Eden to walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, right? Then God makes a covenant treaty with Moses and with the people of Israel, and, and he has them build a tabernacle, which is really just a glorified tent. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? Yeah have a place, a meeting place, where he can come down and be with his people. And then they build the temple, which is kind of the next phase of the tabernacle, and it's, it's this place where God's manifest presence can have permanent resonance among the people. So the story of Scripture is about God trying to come down to be with his people. But he warned them in Deuteronomy that if they disobeyed him, meaning if they rejected their covenant with God, the Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. So the point is, most of scripture is God trying to come down to be with his people, and so he gives them laws so that they can be in a relationship with a holy God and so that his holiness doesn't destroy them. Now let's make a little side point for a minute. God doesn't want to destroy you. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, good news, God doesn't want to destroy you. That's good. It's good, it's good to know that. So, Scripture calls God an all-consuming fire. So, God gives us covenantal boundaries so that the fire of his love can purify us rather than destroy us. Right? Fire is just fire. It either purifies or destroys. And, and really, whether it purifies or destroys depends on what's in the fire itself, right? So, so he gives us these covenantal boundaries so that we can be in his presence and not be destroyed. Unfortunately, particularly in the Old Testament, you see the repeated theme of God keeps trying to come down to be with his people, but his people keep rebelling against their covenant, and so God has to, in some ways graciously, drive them out of his presence and into exile Again, on some level, so that his holiness doesn't destroy him. And what is worse is, um, so, or let me say this, so just like Adam and Eve were exiled from Eden, now the Jews have been exiled from Jerusalem. And notice that Nebuchadnezzar is a tool in God's hand, but the scripture is pretty clear that the Lord is the one who's actually delivered the Israelites into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And what is worse, the articles of the temple are now being placed in the temple of the false Babylonian gods. Now, let's, 
let's kind of put some perspective around this. The articles of the temple are really kind of like your fine china. Think about the purpose of fine china. You break it out so that you can have a, a deeper relationship with people you love, right? You, you utilize it to, to develop a deeper relationship with people you love. So that's the point of these articles of the temple is they were the fine china of the temple. They, they were there so that people could develop a deeper relationship with God. And now the fine china is in some pagan temple and the people are far away from the temple in exile. So this exile into Babylon is probably the lowest point in Israel's history as it's recorded in the Old Testament. It signified that the people had failed. They had failed to keep their covenant. They had failed to love God. They had failed to walk faithfully before him. And now they were kicked out of the promised land. And now this failure leads to um, basically an identity crisis. I want you to just kind of scan over verses 3 through 7 for a minute. So the Babylonians take the best and brightest. They take men from the royal family in Jerusalem, and what do they do? They try to turn them into Babylonians, right? They spend three years teaching them the language and the literature. They spend three years teaching them to think like Babylonians. Think about this. You can get a law degree in three years. So three years is plenty of time for indoctrination, amen? It's all you need. Um, what else do they give them? This is an open question. What else do they give them? They give them food, that's true. And we're about to get to that. What else do they give them? Wine. They give them wine, there you go. And they give them new names. All right, I'm not trying to impress y'all. But to break out my my extensive understanding of Shakespeare, what's in a name? That's an actual question. What's in a name? Identity, right? Okay, so I want you to think about a name. Uh, names are really an all-encompassing sense of identity. A name, uh, in a name, you sing you seek to bring together your work, your family heritage, your personality, your likes, your dislikes, and you kind of distill them all down into a couple of words. Simply put, your name tries to sum up everything you are. By changing the names of these Jews, they are trying to change their very identity at a fundamental level from the people of God to Babylonians. That's what's really going on here. Then let's talk about the food and wine. Where did the food and wine come from? Babylon, but it actually tells us in there. C comes from, from the king's table, right? Now, I want you to think about this. Why would that have been... So presumably, this is the best food that the, in the ancient world that you can buy. Why would it been, have been a problem for them to, to eat this food? Well, first of all, let's think about it on a philosophical level. What are the Babylonians trying to do? They're trying to get these Jews to grow fond of Babylon, right? There, ha there had to be some who were thinking, you know, I miss Jerusalem, but the ribeye steaks here are, are pretty good, and, and the wine is top-notch. Like, like they, they, they were helping them to grow fond of Babylon. Also, these Babylons, uh, excuse me, these Babylonians are, are trying to transform the desires of these Jewish men. And, and, and the reason is... Or let me say this, the reason this is a problem is firstly, 
This meat could have been taken from pagan temples, right? Okay, It could have been sacrificed to other gods. Uh, something that you just kind of need to know when you're reading scripture is temples in the ancient world were really kind of the steakhouses of the ancient world. You would take your cow, you would offer some of it to the god, and then the rest of it would get grilled up, unless it was a burnt offering, and, and you would eat it. So it was really kind of the steakhouse of the ancient world. So first of all, this could have been sacrificed to false gods, which would have made it completely off-limits to Jewish men, right? But let me ask you this. Where do you think this food was coming from before it made it to the temple? Anybody got any guesses? I just heard the word plunder. It's probably coming from a tribute system, right? The Babylonians are the most impressive empire of this point in the world, and so uh, they were eating food based on it being taken from people who were living under the oppressive rule of Babylon, right? So embracing the king's food was really about embracing the tyrannical ways of Babylon, it was about learning to benefit from the oppression of others. And Daniel and his friends will have none of it. Folks, barring God's grace, our culture will often tempt us to get comfortable with ways and behaviors that are hostile to God's ways. We're swimming upstream as the people of God. But notice how Daniel handles it. Pick it up with me in verse 8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. I want you to just underline that first part of verse 8. He resolved himself not to defile himself. And he asked the chief official for permission to not defile himself this way. Now God calls the official to show favor and compassion. I want you to underline that favor and compassion to Daniel. So Daniel resolves himself not to defile himself. And in the midst of the exile, uh, be, because of national rebellion against God, Daniel is wanting to personally keep himself open and honoring to God. Friends, I, I want to take a minute to acknowledge that Daniel is dealing with something that is very uh, real and present to our day and time. It's become very popular to talk about systemic sin. We tend to phrase it like systemic racism or systemic sexism or systemic classism. And, and this is exactly what Daniel is dealing with, right? He is facing systemic sin. And just for us today, to, to be honest, the accusation of systemic sin can just make you a little afraid to be alive in the world today. Does anybody kind of sense that? Right? It can make you feel like you're somewhat always unwittingly supporting some system that harms somebody else. And in many of the cases uh, of the declarations of systemic sin, there's enough truth that frankly, as followers of Jesus, we just can't simply disregard it. Right? We can't just simply say, oh, that's just those people talking. I'm not going to pay attention. And what makes it even harder is that we live in such a globalized society now. Think about it. We don't really know if that shirt we bought from the store was uh, made in a third world country by sweatshop labor uh, by children, right? We really don't know. We don't really know if 
our favorite steaks in our favorite restaurants, we, we don't really know how the cows were treated by the farmers wherever they came from, right? We, we don't really know what our cell phone company, what movements our cell phone company supports with our hard-earned money and whether those movements are in line with our values or not, right? There's just so much that we don't know about how the world operates. And to be honest with you, it can, it can just leave you in a place of perpetual low-grade anxiety. So the question is, what do we do with that? Well, a couple of things. Firstly, like Daniel, we clearly resist anything that comes against God's will. Anything that's clearly against God's will, we just resist it, right? We bless people, but we don't welcome that into our lives. Secondly, we also trust God for grace, right? We trust that the grace of God is at work in our world. We trust that we're frankly not going to know all the stuff, and we don't have to know all the stuff. We can trust that the gracious work of God uh, is, uh, that God's grace is at work in, in the systems of this world to bring change and holiness. And the last thing is we seek, we seek the rakam and kased of God. I'm not trying to impress you, but that was Hebrew right there. <laughs> I want you to look at your neighbor and say, rakam and kased. And here's a, here's a dangerous thing. When you're speaking Hebrew, it is hard not to spit. So, you know, try to, try to keep some distance between you and your neighbor when you speak in Hebrew. All right, back to the point, y'all. So, verse 9. Now, God calls the official to show favor and compassion. Rakam and kesed to Daniel. The Hebrew word rakam means compassion. But more literally, it means the blessing of the breast or the womb. There's a, a sense of the tenderness and intimacy that God is showing to these faithful Jews who are, frankly, just dear to him. And the word kesed is, is favor, but more literally, it, it's the loving kindness of God. Kesed is the, a picture of God who is committed to his people through covenantal love. So with these words, there's a sense of motherly or fatherly intimacy that God is showing to Daniel and his friends through this official. Hear me on this, y'all. When we seek and receive our intimacy from God, we become able to take the sacred stand because we're not desperately hungry for the things of this world. That's what holiness is about. That's the secret of holiness. Holiness is not simply overwhelming abstinence from all things evil. It's soul-fulfilling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what holiness is. It's the soul-fulfilling presence of the Holy Spirit. But like any other vessel, we can only receive to the level that we allow ourselves to first be emptied. We, can, we, we have to make space in our souls for God. So to have strength to take the sacred stand, there has to be places in our lives where we choose the proverbial water and vegetables instead of the riches of Babylon. For me, water and vegetables looks like saying no to things in entertainment and culture that are completely acceptable inside of American society but have no place inside the kingdom. And I, I just want to speak to our students and to our young adults for a minute. 
when I was in high school, and frankly in college to some degree too, probably the hardest thing for me was learning how to navigate friendships in such a way that I genuinely loved people and, and invested in our friendship, but also let them have space to kind of watch things they want to watch, do things they want to do, and, and, and graciously not participate. That was a, that's a hard line to walk. And so parents, I, I invite you, come alongside your students. Come alongside uh, young adults. Talk to me, uh, because cause that, that is the sacred stand, to be able to graciously love people and also be able to, to, to stay firm to a call to walk in holiness. For some of us, thank you, for, for, for some of us, vegetables and water over tasty fare really comes down to how we spend our time. Uh, for me, it looks like getting up earlier than I have to so that I can spend time with God in Scripture and in prayer. More sleep seems more attractive, amen? All right, y'all, that was a little too enthusiastic there. <laughs> a little too enthusiastic right there. More sleep seems more attractive, but time alone with God is what we really need. That's what we desperately need. For some of you, water and vegetables may look like putting your cell phone in another room so that when you enter into prayer, you can listen undistractedly for God's voice. Friends, what are the areas in your life where you need to choose water and vegetables? What are the areas in your life where you need to go directly against the grain of your culture, and hear me on this, even against the grain of your own desires for the sake of being with God? Notice how God responds to these Jewish men who resolve not to defile themselves. Pick it up in verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And God could understand, or excuse me, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, I want you to underline service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Friends, what was the reason that God made Daniel and his friends better than their colleagues? There are multiple reasons. So there are multiple right answers. What were the reasons why God made them better than their colleagues? As a response for their faithfulness, um, somebody said example, which is really um, revealing God's glory. In essence, when you've got men who are like, no, no, Yahweh is my God, and I'm going to live for him, and then they just happen to be better than everybody else, that, that glorifies God, right? But I want you to notice also that God made them better than their colleagues for the sake of service, for the sake of serving Nebuchadnezzar. They weren't willing to indulge in the sinfulness of the culture around them, but they remained willing to serve those in that culture. So notice, guys, the sacred stand neither indulges in cultural sin, nor does it condemn its people, right? And this is the tightrope that I think so many of us struggle with. 
We're either tempted to fudge on what God asks of us and live into the immorality of our culture, or we are tempted to stand on our values with, a, with an attitude of moral superiority and condemnation towards those around us. I hope you're noticing that I'm trying to step on everybody's toes this morning. I'm an equal opportunist toe stepper. That's what I am. But neither of those positions, guys, is the sacred stand. And as a consequence, both fail to welcome the transforming presence of God into our world. Friends, the sacred stand invites the transforming power and presence of God into this world. And, and so we want to make sure that we're on neither extreme. We're, we're right on the narrow road that leads to life. Last week, Carolyn told us about the exhausted majority. I think if we're all honest, we are tired of suffering for the poor choices of others. Can I get an amen? But what do we do? I mean, it's, it's bad enough to suffer for our own sins, but how do we deal with enduring uh, a sense of suffering for the poor choices of others around us, and particularly in our world today? Friends, this is the power that changes the world. It's called embracing the cross. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's willingness to honor God in a foreign land is a pretty good indication that they were honoring God in their homeland, right? That means they were in exile, not for their own sins, but for the sins of others, right? To embrace the cross, we first need to grieve the fact that the world is not fair. And I'm serious about this. I, I do think this is a work that us as believers need to do. I, we need to spend time just grieving the fact the world's not fair. We need to, to grieve the undeniable truth that part of living in this world means that we are dealt bad cards because of the sinful choices that others have made around us and before us. So firstly, notice that Daniel wasn't just taken from his home for the sins of others he was probably also made a eunuch. That means he wasn't just taken from his family, he was probably prevented from ever having a family of his own. And yet he chose to graciously serve those who had unjustly harmed him. But to embrace the cross, we don't simply need to grieve the unjust nature of this world. To embrace the cross, we need to thank God that his redemptive plan is not fair. Think about that. Friends, the truth is, Jesus is the greater Daniel. He's the greater Daniel. Daniel left Jerusalem. Jesus left heaven for our sin and for our sake. Daniel was part of the royal family of Israel. Jesus was and is the royal son of God. Daniel only ate vegetables and drank water. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness so that he could victoriously take, uh, take on the enemy of our souls. Where Daniel was probably unjustly made a eunuch, yet he still chose to serve Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus was maliciously called demon-possessed, beaten mercilessly and crucified, and yet he took it for the sake of loving us and serving us. He took it and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the kingdom of God. It's an upside-down kingdom with a king who defies our expectations and calls us to follow him. 
So guys, the sacred stand calls us to really behold him who stood in the gap for us. It's beholding Jesus and his sacred stand for us that empowers us to take a sacred stand for him. I'm, I'm serious about this. If you'll meditate on Jesus on the cross, if you'll meditate on Jesus on the cross for the love of you, your heart will begin to soften and you'll become more and more willing to take on whatever cross comes your way. Ultimately, it's in bearing the painful consequences of sin, of the sins of others, while still choosing to operate as a conduit of God's grace. It's by embracing our own cross that we take the sacred stand and welcome the transforming presence of God into any situation. I want to close with this story. The story of two men who embraced the cross and took on such a sacred stand. Does anybody recognize who these guys are? Jackie Robinson and uh, the general manager, Branch Rickey. Um, Jackie Robinson was, as many of us know, was the, the first big leaguer to break the color barrier in Major League Baseball. Branch Rickey was the president and general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers who signed him to the team. What often gets untold when you hear this story is that both of these men were devout followers of Jesus. Branch Rickey actually was a Methodist. Rickey felt the systemic injustice of a Major League Baseball community that was exclusively white. So he carefully and covertly scouted out a black player who both had the talent and, more importantly, the character to break the color barrier. After watching Robinson from, from a distance for a while, Ricky invited him to a secretive meeting at his third floor, or excuse me, fourth floor Brooklyn office. Ricky told Robinson about his plan to break the color barrier. According to biographer Eric Metaxas, Robinson said in response that he was sure he could face up to whatever came his way. He wasn't afraid of anyone, and he had been in a number of fistfights throughout the years with anyone who challenged him. But Branch Rickey, as a kind of a fatherly man, responded to Robinson by telling him what he actually needed. He didn't need a player who could fight. Rickey said, I'm looking for a ball player with guts enough not to fight back. He needed a talented black player who could not only play well, but could also take a lot of abuse and say absolutely nothing in response. Ricky knew that if Robinson fired back at racist fans, players, or coaches, it could set back his hopes of seeing the color barrier broken by another decade or so. So after telling Robinson all the types of challenges he would face and helping him to understand the gravity of the call, Ricky read these words of our Lord to Robinson. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Friends, because both of these men took the sacred stand, 
Ricky by humbly and righteously standing up against an unjust system, and Robinson by maintaining his own Christian integrity while quietly enduring verbal abuse from the public and, frankly, physical abuse from the players. Because these men took the sacred stand, God showed up. God showed up. I get it that most of us will never be a central part of a high-profile shift in culture like Ricky and Robinson. But the truth is, it's not primarily about how big our sphere of influence is. It's more about how willing we are to take the stand, the sacred stand, within the sphere of influence that God gives us. How we handle that. So what is the invitation to take the sacred stand that is before you personally? And what do you need to do to be able to take that sacred stand? I, I really, it, as I close this message, I want to move from the theoretical down to the practical. Like, what does this look like in our lives today? For some of you, it, it, it's time for water and vegetables. You really need spiritual discipline in your life. Disciplines like reading scripture and prayer that will allow you to deeply connect with God and find strength in him so that you will have strength to stand. And let me say this, this is not just a beat you over the head, you need to read your Bible session. This is an awareness that our small groups are built on helping people develop relational skills with God disciplines with God where they can encounter God on a regular basis and, and, it's, and it's meant to be a circle that you're invited into that will encourage you and strengthen you to keep walking down that path so if you need some water and vegetables in the, in the, in the form of spiritual disciplines I encourage you to find me, talk to me and help me find help me help you find a group for some of us however preferring water and vegetables means saying no to the ways of Babylon around us. It means it's time to reclaim integrity before God and others. If you're honest, you might like the TV shows and the movies of Babylon a bit too much. You might be embracing and supporting forms of entertainment or lifestyles that are fine by American standards but have no place in the kingdom. And let me say this, I, I speak this as a word with great compassion. If you've grown accustomed to filling your tank with the entertainment equivalent of junk food, wholesome and godly things will taste like water and vegetables for a while. But it's worth it. Because blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Right? For others of us, um, the sacred stand really means reclaiming integrity in relationships. Maybe it's a family relationship where there's a need for boundaries. There's a sense of codependence that needs to be broken so that you can walk in holiness before God. For some of you, you're, you may be in romantic relationships that frankly need to be brought back under the lordship of Jesus. And that's a big deal. As we step into prayer, I invite you to do business with God. I invite you to be very real, very honest, seek his forgiveness, but also seek his grace to mature into the person that he called you to be. Let me say this, y'all go ahead and stand. For some of us, we need God to soften our hearts. 
so that like Daniel, we can humbly love and serve those who make our lives harder than they need to be. It feels easier to just subtly condemn people and kind of sit in our quiet self-righteousness but that doesn't move the ball forward, right? That, that doesn't create transformation by the presence of God. So I humbly ask you, what would it look like instead of fussing at the TV to pray for God's wisdom and His blessing and His encouragement and His holiness over our political leaders or over people you see in the media or, or over people in your world that are frustrating What would it look like to pick up the phone, to be the first one to pick up the phone and make a call to to seek reconciliation in a relationship that has experienced distance and been cold for a while? If you want your heart to, to become tender, look to Jesus on the cross. Look to love itself poured out on your behalf. If you want to grow in holiness, Look to Jesus on the cross. Look look at what our sin did cost him. And by the grace of God, you will go from not just avoiding sin to hating sin so that you can love him. Let's just begin to pray. Lord, we just acknowledge that holiness is your work and willingness is ours. So God, I just pray right now that every heart in this room would be willing to grow more in your holiness. Be willing to grow more and to receive what you have for us, God. Yeah. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are king. And we acknowledge as king, you took on the cross for our sakes. I pray that as as an allegiance to you, as obedience to you, that you would equip us and empower us, strengthen us to embrace the cross so that we can take a sacred stand and see your transforming presence in our world. See your transforming presence in our classrooms, Lord, and in our workplaces and in our friendships and in our family relationships, God. Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in the heavenlies. For Jesus, it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, We'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.